Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hi, I'm Mike Connell, and welcome to AAP Practice Life Podcast. I'm really happy to be joined today by Dr. Amy Grice. Welcome, Amy. Hey there. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you're ex of New York State, and now you're enjoying the frontier life in Wyoming. Tell us where you've been and how you got to Wyoming. Actually, it's Montana, Mike, but I practiced as an ambulatory practitioner and as the managing partner of a large referral practice in upstate New York for over 25 years. And then I had earned my MBA and I got hurt a couple of summers in a row and hurt my knee, same knee, and just decided that it was time to let clinical practice go and start to make a difference in the industry by helping veterinarians rather than helping horse owners. And so I began doing business management and business consulting for veterinarians. And as a wonderful part of that, I was able to move to Montana, where I'd always wanted to live. So that's me. Well, no, I just, I see the photos from Facebook, and it looks like an absolute amazing place to be. So kudos to you for making that transition. The reason why we're chatting today is this is just prior to the 2019 AAP annual convention, and Amy will be presenting her findings or a summary of the findings between the AAP AVMA Equine Vet Economic Study. I think I've captured it all. Perhaps, I mean, it's a huge document. I, I started reading it and I was like, I, I, I have many hours left to live in my life. I want to, it's a deep document. My gosh. Yes, it is. Wow. How about some highlights? And I don't want to give away too much because I can't wait for the presentation in Denver. So maybe we can go over some of the highlights and just have a discussion of just the economic state of the equine vet profession. Well, one of the things I want to say right off is that we are going to have almost an entire session on this particular survey with a number of other people besides me presenting the information. It's going to be terrific. It happens right after the business news hour. And if you wanted to see the over 500-page survey of yourself and read it, it is found on the AAEP website. If you hit the resources tab at the top, then it appears on a blue bar to the left. And it is a very amazing document with, as Mike said, it just has so much information in it. But some of the things that I think are the most important initially to know about the study is that of the respondents, there was really quite a difference between the uh, two genders. The average age of the female um, respondents was 39, and they had an average of 12 years of experience. And the males, as you might imagine, because the demographics of our profession have changed so much, the average age is 55 with 29 years of experience. So when you look at the survey or you listen to the sessions that we'll have at the conference in a, in a week or so, you have to keep these changes in demographics in mind because when anything is sliced and diced by gender, you're going to have that experience gap and that age gap. No kidding. You know, I, I noticed that too. I'm glad yeah. you started with that because when we start going through so many of the categories, it's it's marked, it, the differences. Yeah. 
It, yeah. And so it's so important to to keep that in mind as you look at things, because a lot of the things that you see, unless the data has been normalized for those changes, it's going to affect it. Mm -hmm. But probably one of the interesting things about it is that we're going to be able to get more information from the regular AVMA surveys that they do every year, because the equine respondents of the AVMA surveys were matched against the AVMA AAEP respondents, and the data was validated. So even with a smaller number of equine respondents to those annual surveys, they were matched and validated. So we'll be able to actually get some additional information with every year that passes, which is pretty great. Yeah, that is good. So demographically, it's pretty interesting. Equine practitioners in many ways match the AVMA general uh, population, which is almost all uh, companion animal. 70% are married. Of the equine people, though, 50, you know, 51% live in rural areas and 40% in suburban areas. So it makes sense. That's where the horses are. And that's certainly different from the AVMA. Yeah. One of the first things that caught me was just, it was a nice amount to see just how many equine vets there are in the United States and just what percentage are they of the total population. And boy, we are a small We're group tiny. compared to the big, big group. I mean, we sit at the kids table and it makes sense because when you look at industry and, you know, the amount of, you know, with our, with our industry partners, uh, you know, the pharmaceuticals and the distributors, boy, you can understand why they would give priority to our companion animal or food animal colleagues because they're vastly bigger than us. I mean, what we were 5.7% of the total population. Uh, in 2018, we're 5.6% of equine only veterinarians in private practice were 4,125 of us, and there are 73,373 wow. in private practice. So, we're, I mean, we're this tiny little, little bunch. And we have actually changed from a predominantly male membership to now it's, you know, the females are just a little bit ahead. Uh, in AVMA, the, the equine ones are 54.2% female. AAEP members, it's uh, more like 51% female now. So it's been a slow progression of a change in the gender of our mm -hmm. profession, which is, is having some fairly marked effects on our industry. And sort of the big ones that jump out at you, because I, I made some notes. Going back to the survey, I was, I was able to get through the executive summary. That's itself only about 20 pages. But. <laughs> no, actually, it's 50. <laughs> but uh, I think one of the things that really jumped out at all of us that worked on the survey uh, task force was that when we looked at first salaries after internship, there was about a $10,000 difference between first salaries after internship for males versus females. And this is contemporary data. The females mm -hmm. were earning uh, first salaries, 51109 And the males were offered 61810 I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that jumped out at me. I, I read that a couple of times to make sure I was reading that correctly. Right. We all did. We all did. Wow. And, and that's a difference of 16.2%. And it's not clear why that would be happening. The mm. questions certainly don't bring that out. One can conjecture 
one can think about a lot of things. Um, one of the things we do know is that it is not about the number of hours work. The females work an equal a number of hours to the males. So it's not about hours worked. Over time, there's a slight difference in gross revenue earned, but it's really hard to say starting out why that's happening. I mean, one of the things that we wonder since the majority of owners are male, is it a status quo bias? That's how it's always been. They're more used to, you know, males look like them. Uh, it, it's it's sure. really unclear um, why that's happening. Yep. And that's one of the things I thought of is, is just anecdotally, when you talk to practice owners, there is the preference for a male vet, unfortunately. And is that bias steering them to get more work or more willingness to share with them? I don't know. It's That was an area I think they should be diving in a bit deeper because that was a remarkable difference. I do think that certainly part of it may be just simply the reality of biology that uh, many young women, as a part of their lives, want to have children, and their biological clocks tend to be ticking when they finished uh, veterinary school and internship. So it's not unlikely that a maternity leave will happen. But isn't this just isn't this starting salary? Though? It so is. Would, would that still well, apply? Well, you know, people look to the future. I mean, I think practice owners yeah. think, "Gosh, well, if I can find a male." Will he take a maternity leave? No, he won't. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where that bias comes in. There okay. is that you're more, you know, as a practice owner, you, you know, you'll push more work to the male because they quote unquote will be around a bit longer. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the financial realities in equine practice, and for an equine practice owner, you know, it's hard for a young associate to get their own clients and to produce revenue for the practice. Uh, it's, it's really hard in their first year if they manage to produce $200,000 of gross revenue for the practice. And as a female, they're being paid 51000 That's 25%. If they're male mm-hmm. and they're being paid almost 62000 that's 31% of their gross revenue. And most practice management people say the entire total cost of employing someone should not exceed 25% of their gross revenue. So you're already pushing profit in that direction, Mm -hmm. you're making an investment in that associate that they're going to stay long-term. So when you think about owners, hmm, will the male stay long-term or will the female stay long-term? I think that's got to have something to do with it. Totally an unconscious bias, but I can Mm -hmm. see that happening. One of the other areas that factor into this too, which surprised me, is that they looked at the revenue of vet practices since the Great Recession. And, and correct me, I'm I'm wrong. I'm just from what my readings were is that equine practices revenue or you know is down about six point seven percent, whereas companion animal vet revenue is up twenty two percent. What's that? A twenty seven percent gap? It is. That's a, phenomenal. It's a huge gap, and what we're seeing is that there are less horses in the United States. It takes a lot of Mm -hmm. funds to have a horse. It is, you know, the majority of horse owners now, you know, make more than $100,000. As the U.S. population grows, the percentage of people that have pets, meaning cats and dogs, stays the same, which means we have absolute numbers that increase of those companion animals as our population increases. That's not happening with the equine side. 
Yeah, because they said the decrease in horse owners between 18 and 34 is down considerably. You know, that's our the next generation of, of our competitors. Fortunately, there is a little bit of good news in the American Horse Council's study in 2017. Um, there has been some degree of turnaround there. Currently, the median age of horse owners is 38. And people that are active in horse activities that don't own horses... 38% of them are under 18 years of age. So we Well, that's good. We do have yeah. some youngsters coming in. So this is good. Yeah. Tell me within the 500 pages and I apologize I didn't ah. read all of them. There's been a lot of discussions on our listservs, the media, what have you, just about the challenges facing the racing industry. Was there any discussion on the racing there industry in this survey? Okay. So it didn't get broken down into specific Well, it got or broken down into like what percentages of our industry, the equine veterinary industry, were participating in certain sectors. But we are such a fragmented industry that it was not possible with the number of respondents that we had to really make any specific mm -hmm. things. We couldn't really say much about those different sectors. The other area that I found interesting was just talking about, you know, burnout mental health. And the one conclusion that 25% of female practitioners, you know, said their, their mental health was fair to poor, which is, that's a lot higher than the, the men. But I think in terms of the flip side of it, those who feel their mental health burnout is that, you know, it's fine, they're in a good place. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm reading it wrong, better than in general companion animal practice. Am I right in that assumption? I think that those results were really hard to draw very good conclusions from. What we found in the, the survey was that there was a linear declining trend of mental health with graduation year. And I think that's really got to be directly related to how much debt there is. Because salaries are so right. low in the equine side, their debt to income ratios are just ridiculously high. In 2016, the mm -hmm. equine debt to income ratio was 2.48. With all new vets, it was 1.7, which is still higher than the recommended 1.4 for professionals. But I mean, that has only gone up. I think the latest figure I saw was 2.86 for equine. Why are equine students coming out far higher debt than their companion animal or other vet colleagues? Do? In fact, they are not. Debt oh, no to kidding. income ratio, their incomes are lower. So is their debt. So in 2016, when you looked at all graduates, the average debt was 142732 And equine was 131, 325. So they have less debt, but their salaries are so much lower that the debt to income ratio is higher. Sure. Particularly if most people are doing internships, that would for sure skew that. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And you know, what's really very kind of scary, especially for those that are graduating, of those equine graduates with debt, that anybody that's holding debt right now that's working in equine practice, over 13% of them pay more than 30% of their compensation to service oh their debt. 12% pay 21 to 30. And about a quarter of them pay 11 to 20% of their compensation to pay their, their educational debt payments. Wow. It makes it very hard. When you look at the 2019 data has come out for um, graduating veterinary students or, or graduate veterinarians that are 
that are just taking their first jobs, and the average is 82,000. Of course, those are mostly companion animal mm-hmm. jobs. And the, the equine figure is still way down there in the 50s, high 50s. Has anybody attempted to, to normalize it? Because I think a lot more equine school graduates go into internships. And that number just always seems skewed to me. Well, I know. And I have uh, questioned the folks at the AVMA Economic Group. I'm on the Economic Strategy Committee. So I have asked a lot of different people. And internships are not included in that figure. Hmm. They are not included in the figure. Yeah. So that's maybe one of the most depressing things I've heard today. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> we always, you know, justify it by, oh, okay. I mean, as a they have an internship, so of course they're going to get paid lower and they'll make up for it later on. Mm-hmm. But obviously that is not the case. Well, if you think about it, it's possible that, that those practice owners that are hiring a new graduate to be an equine practitioner directly out of school they are essentially going to end up having to mentor them and teach them and do mm-hmm. things in order to help them develop into a practitioner that's going to be successful. Right. And so in many ways, you could look at it that they are, if they are paying them fifty or 55000 or $58,000, they are actually investing a lot more profit yep. in that person that first year. Now, is there a time when the salaries start to even out, when the equine practitioners start to get a comparable salary? It's certainly, in the first five years, it seems like once equine veterinarians get through that five years, that they are producing almost the same amount of gross revenue as those that have been out much longer. For instance, the average median personal gross revenue at five years is 300000 for equine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at all of the respondents, the associates average 356 and the owners 385. So they're very close at five years. Right. But sadly, if you look at that 25% compensation as the total cost of their employment, that's still not a lot of money. No, no. And also, I know um, in the survey, they do talk about that 50% of new grads in the AP that become AP members appear to leave the profession uh, as equine vets. So, you know, it seems like you got a five-year uh, period and then you get past that hump and revenue starts to increase and pay increases. And that's the seems to be the, the, the transition point. And 50% of new vet, equine vets don't get to that point, which is a real challenge when we have such a demand for equine vets and we have such a, a bloated attrition rate. Uh, was there any discussion at all about that in, in terms of that high attrition rate? Well, you know, it's certainly something that that really, really concerned us. And it is something that when you look at the year 2000, there were about 5% of new graduates entering equine. And in 2017, there was 1.1%. In 2018, 1.5%. I think in 19, it dropped back down. So, you know, if you think about the fact that there's, if you include Caribbean island schools and the 16 foreign accredited schools, there's about 4,300 seats. So if you make the math easy and you say 1% wow. are going into equine, that's 43 40. that's people. Ridiculous. And there were over 240 jobs one day when I was looking on the AAEP mm. marketplace. I mean, you know, I started to think about that and I, I decided to ask people, in a sort of semi-formal way by doing a survey 
monkey survey, which I put on several different Facebook equine practitioner sites. It was a really interesting thing because, of course, I got lots and lots of comments on the Facebook sites as well. And it was just oddly heartbreaking. I talked to several of the people that reached out and did the survey and made comments. And, you know, their dream for their, since they were a kid, had been to be an equine practitioner. And they're heartbroken. But they mm-hmm. they went into equine practice. They, they hit it hard. They were the cream of the crop of people that understood the industry that had been around horses many times their whole lives. That's what they wanted to do. And as they started to realize the realities of paying student loans and blending having a family with the demands of equine practice, or perhaps their spouse got transferred and a decision had to be made, they suddenly looked at what they could get in the companion animal world $100,000 $100,000 for 32 or 40 hours a week, no emergency call. Yep. And and suddenly yep. they thought, I have to make my family or my health or something that was that was challenging them about equine practice. I have to make that a priority. Yeah. And who can blame them? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so knowing what you know now, if you were at a practice that you were going to hire young associates and you wanted to keep them for a long time, you didn't want them to have this kind of attrition rate. What would you do now to keep a vet with you long term from what you've seen? I think one of the first things that I would be sure of is that I understood what their vision for their career was, their vision for their professional future, but also their personal future. I think that I would make sure that I was charging adequate prices that I could afford to compensate my associates so that they could afford to have a comfortable life and not have to work as many hours as many of us did coming up in this industry. I think the reality is that while this is a huge challenge and threat to the equine veterinary industry, it is more of a threat to equine owners being able to get veterinary care. Well, that's one of the things I always worry about. I mean, this is something I think about a lot. I have a lot of young vets in our practice, and boy, this this is one of those things that keeps me awake at night sometimes right. is when are these next vets coming along. And, you know, I'm okay-ish because I'm in a, you know near a big metropolitan city, places where people want to be. There are other practices, mm-hmm. more rural areas. That's really hard to attract people. Or there isn't the caseload to justify three or four vets so there's a decent share right. on call. And so I think, you know, to me, we may be going back to the days of some of these more rural areas of more of the James Harriet approach where more of a mixed animal approach or we got to collaborate much more in our profession. And so it's not a bunch of practices or lone wolves doing their own thing, but working together so we can have that shared on call and not nickel and dime each other to the bottom and trying to compete by cutting prices, which we see far too I feel often. very optimistic about the young graduates and I just feel very optimistic about their ability to collaborate and work together. I, I do yeah, networking I groups for veterinarians that are in their first 10 years of practice or practice ownership, and I am blown away by how much they help each other and how much they collaborate. So what I see is people getting together, sharing on call, being able to form collaborations, even if they're not merging, 
where they're able to share, even share equipment, share on call. And, you know, I don't know whether it's a a generational difference where they grew up watching Bob the Builder and that awful purple dinosaur where, you know, everybody collaborated. It was a team effort. Whether that has had some effect or whether it's a gender difference or I'm not sure, but they certainly help each other. I see that as well, too. And I think I agree with you that I'm very confident and I'm I'm confident in our profession because of that, because they're going to do things differently than the established owners and practices have done, but they're going to do their own way. And I, and I agree collaboration is it's inherent in them. And I think that will be the saving grace of the, of the future generation. I'd like to stop on that high note because I think that is wonderful. I don't want to get into too much details and, and take the wind out of your sails before the presentation. I cannot wait for that whole session with m- many people talking about it because I said this is there's a lot of meat and potatoes in this, and uh, I'm looking forward to how it's all dissected out. Is there anything that we should have talked about that we didn't? I just uh, I just would like to say again that I'm inspired by the people that are coming up behind us, and I agree with you. While there are threats and concerns in the industry right now, I feel pretty optimistic that they are very smart and very terrific veterinarians. And I think our industry is going to be in good hands. Yep. I think we got to change to accommodate them instead of forcing them to accommodate us. So excellent. Well, thank you very much, Amy. I look forward to seeing you in Denver. It looks like a great program, a great business program, and I appreciate you taking the time to help out with the AAP Practice Life podcast. Thanks, Mike. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.